Please bow with me. Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for the ability to come together and to worship your great name. Father, there's so many things that you've given us. Help us to not lose sight of that. Help us to always focus on you and all that we do. Father, um, help us to hear your word today. Help it, help it to um, swell up in, in, inside of us so that we're able to go out into this world and tell other people about you. Father, just continue to lead God and direct us in all that we do. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen. Thank you, musicians, for leading us uh, in worship to God. Good to sing about God today. What a, what a privilege to worship. I want to just add my uh, encouragement to what Jake said to you, encourage you to be involved in this next month. Jake will be preaching these four sermon series. I'll be away for four weeks on a sabbatical, be doing some study and writing. You can read about that in the newsletter. I won't uh, share, take time to share about that again. But I've asked Jake to preach these series of sermons, and the small groups on Sunday night tie in with those sermons. They introduce our mission partners, that you can pray for our mission partners. And this is an opportunity for you to fellowship together. We've done these Sunday night small groups in September for several years now, so it's an opportunity for your connection group to get to know one another better, maybe in a home or maybe at church. Um, usually they eat together. It, it, there's something about eating together that you get to know people together. And, and so I want to encourage you to get more connected involved. I encourage every connection group, adult connection group, to sponsor one. There will be groups for high school, middle school, children, and preschool here at the church from 545 to 745. So if your group starts at 6, you have time to, to drop off your kids and go to a home or somewhere and then and then come back and pick them up. So it's a good opportunity for us to just get connected a little bit more. If your connection group does not sponsor one, you can go to any one of those groups. They'll be listed in the newsletter this week and the bulletin next week. So I encourage you to be a part of that. <clears throat> this morning, I want us to think together about God and what He's like. And one of my favorite passages about what God is like is Isaiah chapter 40. We're going to look at it together this morning. Let me give you some background. Isaiah 1 through 39, the first 39 chapters of Isaiah, is God speaking through his prophet saying, I'm going to judge the people of Judah for their sins. I'm going to allow them to be taken into exile in Babylon. So chapters 1 through 39 is a, is a message of condemnation and judgment. But then the book of Isaiah changes in chapter 40 through 66, the rest of the book, and it's a message of comfort. And God looks ahead to a time after 70 years of discipline, chastisement are over, and he says, then I'm going to bring you back to the land, from captivity into the promised land once again. And so it's a message of encouragement and comfort. So let's read the introduction in Isaiah 40, verses 1 and following. Here's the introduction to this chapter. Comfort, comfort my people. And that's the theme of this section. Says your God, speak tenderly to Jerusalem and proclaim to her that her hard service has been completed, that her sin has been paid for, that she's received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. And then he says in verse 3, Isaiah says, I'm like a voice 
of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. So God's getting ready to come and deliver them, and Isaiah is paving the way. But God anticipated that at this point in the future, there would be people who would be discouraged and would wonder, can God really do that? I mean, can he really resurrect a nation? No other nation that's gone into exile has ever come back. That sounds impossible. Not sure if God can do that. And then he anticipated that some of them would say, and even if he can, I'm not sure he wants to. He pretty much gave up on us. I don't even know if God really cares about us. I don't know if God loves us. And so God anticipates that as he gets ready to do this work, there will be people who have doubts about who he is, about his power and his ability to deliver them, and about his heart and his willingness to deliver them. And so in Isaiah 40 is one of the great places in the Bible where God reveals two truths about himself that we want to look at today. And these two truths are that God is big and God cares. Our God is a big God and our God is a caring God. And maybe there have been times in your life when you have the same kind of doubts that Judah had. Maybe you pray for something and it doesn't happen. Maybe you go through a tough time as they were going through and you don't understand Or maybe you you just don't feel God's presence and you wonder about these two things. Is he really in control? Would this have happened to me if God were in control? And if he's in control, does he care? Because he just seems distant. And so today, we're just going to think about God and two attributes of God that we need to know for our lives. Our God's a big God. And our God's a caring God. These two attributes are introduced in Isaiah 40, verses 10 and 11. Verse 10 is about how big he is. Verse 11 is about how caring he is. Let's look at those two key verses. First of all, verse 10. See, the sovereign Lord comes with power. And he rules with a mighty arm. Each of these two verses depicts the arm of God in a certain position. And in verse 10, it is as if the arm of God is is curled up like he's making a muscle, or the arm of God is raised in victory. He comes, it says, with a mighty arm. His reward is with him and his recompense accompanies him. So there's introducing the greatness, the bigness, the power of God. Then verse 11, the other side of God's character. He tends his flock like a shepherd. He gathers the lambs in his arms. So see, now it talks about the arms of God again in this verse in a very different posture. And now the arms of God are like a shepherd cradling a newborn, vulnerable, weak little lamb. And it is saying God is both of those things. And you need to know that in your life. Listen to the verbs in verse 11. He tends his flock like a shepherd. He gathers the lambs in his arms. He carries them close to his heart. He gently leads those that have young. 
God is like that toward you. There is a God who loves you and who wants to tend you and gather you and carry you and gently lead you. Those are the two qualities of God introduced in these two verses. And we're going to unpack them throughout this chapter. And we're going to see something of the expanse of God's bigness and the tenderness of His caring. So, first of all, in verses 12 and following, he expands on verse 10. So the first section expands on verse 10 of how big is God. God is big. And you're supposed to say, how big is he? Very good. Some of you got that. How big is he? Well, let's look at verse 12 and see who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand. That's the first statement about how big God is. Now, the hollow of your hand is this depression in your palm, okay? And it says that God measures the waters of the earth in the hollow of his hand. So I got Cindy's, uh, my wife's measuring spoons this morning and got some water from the sink and, and measured how much I could hold in the hollow of my hand. Not as much as I thought. A teaspoon I did well with. When I got the tablespoon measurement and poured it into my hand, it ran over the edges so I cannot hold a full tablespoon. You can try this on your own at home when you get home. But uh, I couldn't hold a tablespoon in the hollow of my hand. But it says that God holds the waters in the hollow of his hand. 836 million cubic miles of water upon the face of this earth. A cubic mile, 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 mile. 836 million cubic miles of water, so much that if you bulldozed all of the land mass on earth, all of Mount Everest, McKinley, all of the continents, and bulldozed them into the oceans, our planet would still be covered with water one mile deep. That's a lot of water. And God holds the waters in the hollow of his hand. That's how big our God is. In the second part of this verse, it says, Or with the breadth of his hand marked off the heavens. Now, the breadth of your hand, hand span, is from the tip of your thumb to the tip of your pinky. I measured mine. It's eight and a half inches, nine if I really stretch. So that's a hand span. And God measures off the heavens with the span of his hand. Now, let's just try for a moment to wrap our minds around how big the universe is, Okay? The closest star is 25 trillion miles away. When you look up tonight in the sky and see those beautiful stars, and the closest one of those from our planet is 25 trillion miles away. But now that, I can't grasp those kind of numbers. That just doesn't compute in my mind. So let's make a model of the universe up here on the stage and shrink it. You know, you've seen those models of the solar system that your kids maybe had to do in school with a basketball and, you know, a ping pong ball, you know, that kind of thing. So let's do a model of the universe up here on stage. And let's say if we shrunk the sun to the size of this penny, okay, so that we're going to make a scale model 
shrinking the sun to the size of this penny. I'm going to put it way over here. We've got this nice open stage now, almost finished. Put it over here so we'll have plenty of room. So right here, that's going to be the sun, okay? Now, in our scale model of the universe, if we shrunk the sun to the size of that penny, we're going to let this penny represent the nearest star 25 trillion miles away. How far do you think that's going to be in our scale model of the universe? The closest star now. You think here or here or here or here or here in the scale model of our universe or in the food line parking lot? St. Louis, Missouri. Boom! That just sort of blows my mind. Doesn't it you? 300 in the scale model of the universe with the sun shrunk to the size of a penny, the closest star is in St. Louis, Missouri, 350 miles away. And that's the closest star. And in our scale model of the universe to the farthest star that we know of, which is 13 billion light years away, then in our scale model of the universe, with the closest star in St. Louis, the farthest star would be seven and a half million miles away to the moon and back 13 times. In our scale model of the universe! How big is our God? He spans the universe, that distance, from His thumb to His pinky. Don't ever think that your God is too small to do something. Don't ever doubt the power or the majesty or the greatness of a God who spans the universe from his thumb to his pinky. Now, we see how big he is in relation to creation. Well, what about, let's talk about politics, let's talk about nations, and, and we're worried about Iran and their nuclear weapons, and, and we're worried about uh, ISIS and, and Russia. Let's go to verse 15. And it says, how big is our God? Well, surely the nations are like a drop in the bucket. You ever heard that phrase, a drop in the bucket? Did you ever wonder where it came from? Here's where it came from. You see, and let me just say that for a moment. You know why some of the expressions that we use came from the Bible? Because the early generations of America knew their Bible all the way through. And the, the phraseology of the Bible came over into their language so that they said, oh, that's just a drop in the bucket. Because they had read Isaiah 40 over and over so much that they knew that phraseology. Isn't that amazing? That we don't know our Bibles like previous generations of Americans have because all of the, the phrases that we often use are from the Bible. The apple of my eye, drop in the bucket, many of these things. That's just a little side benefit that's free there. So he said the nations are like a drop in the bucket, like if you bought uh, water in the desert land where the Bible came from, you wouldn't be concerned. Oh, there's still a drop in there that you didn't get out. It says they are regarded as dust on the scales, he weighs the islands as though they were fine dust, dust on the scales. Like if you buy something that you weigh, even if you're really cheap, you don't really worry about the dust on the scales, do you? Go to Food Line uh, tomorrow, buy a pound of bananas for 59 cents, 79 cents. When they pass over that checkout scale, are you going to say, oh, wait a minute, would you get a cloth and sort of wipe that off before you weigh my bananas? Because that dust, I don't want to pay 
for that dust on the scale. No, we just disregard that. It's inconsequential to us. And God says the power of political forces that you worry about is inconsequential to me. It is like dust on the scales. You think God is worried? Sometimes we get worried, oh, what's going to happen to our world? And, and, and I don't know, it's just out of control and all of that. And certainly we ought to be concerned about our world and we ought to be involved. But we should not worry because you know what God says? <laughs> it's like dust on the scales to me. doesn't bother me. He's greater than the nations. Let's go in another verse, in verse 18, and compare him to other gods. Maybe he's threatened by other gods. Maybe Islam is growing at such a fast rate. Maybe it's going to dominate the world and going to take over Christianity. Or, and maybe we're just going to be extinct. And maybe God feels a little bit threatened by other world religions or movements. And, and boy, maybe we ought, to, we ought to worry about that. Listen to verse 18. With whom then will you compare God? To what image will you liken him? And so he is saying in these verses that every other God is not alive. That's not politically correct today, but, but it's true. It's what the Bible says, that there's no other living God. All the other gods are idols. And there's no one you can compare to God. And so he talks about idols in verses 19 and 20. And frankly, it's a little bit sarcastic. He sort of mocks them a little bit. Let me read it to you. As for an idol, a metal worker casts it, a goldsmith overlays it with gold and fashions silver chains for it. A person too poor to present such an offering selects wood that will not rot. So when you're forming your God, you want to get some good wood because it would be bad if your God rotted, right? You know, that would be bad. You know, you'd hate to have a God that rots on you. You, you get the, the mockery, the sarcasm a little bit. They look for a skilled worker to set up an idol that will not topple. So when you get you a God other than the one true living God, you want to get somebody who really knows how to make stuff because if it's a little wobbly, your God could fall over and that'd be a bad thing if you're worshiping your God and it just thump, toppled over, you know. So you want it good and sturdy base, wide at the bottom. Do you hear, the, do you hear a little bit of the, the mockery there? God's not threatened by any movement or political force or, or ideology. He's above all the gods of the world. And my, the last verse in this section is, is my favorite. It's verse 26. We're not looking at all of them. You can go through this whole chapter. We're hitting the highlights. Verse 26 is my favorite. It says, lift up your eyes and look to the heavens. Who created all these? You see the Babylonians who had taken Israel captive were big into astrology. Worshipped the stars, had astrologists. Um, the stars represented gods to them. And so the one true living God says, lift up your eyes and look to the heavens. Who created all these? He who brings out the starry host one by one and calls forth each and calls forth each of them by name now here's an amazing verse about how big god is god created all the stars and he calls them each by name now so how many stars are there 
Well, in our Milky Way galaxy, of which our solar system is a part, there are, they tell us, about 400 billion stars. 400 billion in our galaxy. And they estimate that there are 170 billion galaxies. You know what 400 billion times 170 billion is? That's a lot. That's, that's a lot. It's, it's about one septillion stars. How many stars are there in the universe? Over one septillion. But again, that's sort of like, oh, I better get my penny. Somebody might get that. I wouldn't want to lose that. It's about like my penny. Uh, that just beyond my imagination, one septillion, that doesn't mean much to me. And I read something that put it into perspective. How many stars are there? in the universe that God created and he knows them by name? Have you ever been to the beach? Put your toes in the sand and wiggle it. Your kids make a sand castle. And you scoop up the sand. How many grains of sand do you think are in your hand when you scoop them up? A thousand maybe? I don't know. How many do you think are down the beach at Panama City? You look that way and that way. How many grains of sand do you think there are? A bunch, Right? University of Hawaii has estimated the number of grains of sand on the earth. They, they measured the number of grains, the average size of a grain of sand, how many grains in a teaspoon, so forth. They say that there are seven quintillion grains of sand on the earth. So here's what helped me with the stars. You go to the beach and you see all that grains of sand. There are more Stars in the sky than grains of sand upon planet earth. Boom! That just blows my mind again, doesn't it you? Now you think about that. It's not even close. One quadrillion uh, grains of sand on the earth. Not even close to the number of stars in the sky. And God named them one by one. If the seven billion people upon planet Earth, if we were just all, we were going to name the stars like God has, let's all work together and we're all going to name the stars, okay? We, we'll do what God has done. Then each of you and I would be responsible if we divided them up evenly for naming one quadrillion stars. I'd start with, I think the first one I'd call Twinkle and... Uh, you know, I think I'd run out before one quadrillion, don't you? Do you just get the enormity of our God who created more stars in the heavens than our grains of sand in all the deserts and all the beaches upon planet earth? And he named them one by one. He knows, he recognizes the individual characteristics of every one of them. You think about recognizing the individual characteristics of every grain of sand on planet earth. He does that and more. He knows the individual characteristics of every star and he has named them one by one. The point of this is, whenever you get in a place where you're not sure God's big enough to handle your problems and what's going on in our world, you need to come back to Isaiah 40 to say, our God is so big. He's bigger than any of the things that we talked about here today. Then, in verse 28, Isaiah comes to unpack the other 
attribute of God introduced in verse 11. And that is that this enormous God cares about you and me. And so verse 28 says, Do you not know? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He'll not grow tired or weary in His understanding. No one can fathom. But here's the deal, the next verse. He gives strength to the weary and increases the power of the weak. So this great God who never runs out of energy, who has an unlimited source of power and ability, is generous with that, and He gives it to those who admit they need it. He shares His power with those who are vulnerable and are weak. He's that compassionate God who does not hoard His power, is not jealous for it, but gives strength to the weary and increases the power of the weak. And verse 30 says, even youths grow tired and weary and young men stumble and fall. So in contrast to God who never gets weary, we all do. But verse 31, but those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. The word renew there means to exchange is a literal translation. You can exchange your strength for God's strength. When I was a kid, Coca-Cola came in returnable bottles. And you got a deposit for the bottles. And so when you went to buy Coke at the store, you took your empty Coke bottles to them and gave them to them, and they, when you paid for it, gave you full Coke bottles. You exchanged the empties for the full. That's sort of the word right here. He will exchange their strength. You can take your emptiness to God, and He'll give you fullness. He exchanges. He renews strength. The key is, the key word, verse 31, those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. This word in Hebrew is translated three different ways in the Old Testament. In Psalms, in Isaiah, different places, it's translated hope, wait, and trust. It has an element of time to it. That's why it's the idea of waiting. It has an element of expectancy to it. That's the idea of hope. And it has an idea of faith in it, that's trust. You can translate it any of these ways. Those who wait on the Lord. You see, if if God does not seem powerful or caring in your life, it is not a matter of His ability. It may be a matter of His timing. And those who wait on the Lord will renew their strength. And He is looking for those who will admit their needy, those who trust in the Lord. And those who hope in the Lord. And that's your key posture. You want God to help you then you wait and trust and hope because those who wait and trust and hope in the Lord can exchange their empty strength for His full strength. And the last part says, they'll soar on wings like eagles. They'll run and not grow weary. They'll walk and not be faint. And as a writer, if you read that, you think, didn't Isaiah sort of get that backwards? Wouldn't it have been more climactic if he had said, if you will put your hope or faith or trust in the Lord, then you will walk and then you can run, and then you can soar like an eagle. That would seem like building more to a climax, wouldn't it? So why did he write it in just the opposite? I think it is because the long haul is tougher than the short run. And God will give you strength for those crisis moments that you can soar and that you can run, but what you really need and what he ends with is you can walk that daily walk, the long haul, And He will give you the strength to do that. 
He's saying to these people of Israel, I'm going to get you out of Babylon, but you're not just going to soar in that moment. You'll be able to run the race and you'll be able to walk in the future wherever it takes you because I am a powerful God who cares about you. Israel needed at this point to be reminded of what God is really like. And it may be you're in a place in your life where what you really need is to be reminded of what God is really like. Because it doesn't seem like this to you. And you need to be able to hold these concepts. That there's a God who holds the oceans in the hollow of His hand. Who spans the universe with a hand span. Who laughs at the nations like they are dust at the scale. Who's greater than any other God. And a He is one who wants to carry you in his arms, tend you like a shepherd, care for you like a newborn lamb. That's the amazing, big and caring God that you have. And you need to hold on to that and what you're going through in life. There's one more thing I need to share with you. This story is part of a bigger story. And the caring and the power of God is fully and finally revealed in Jesus Christ. When Mark began to write his gospel, his story of Jesus, he started with the verses I read to you from Isaiah. Let me read it to you in Mark chapter 1, verse 1, the beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God, as it was written in Isaiah the prophet, I'll send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for Him. Mark quoted that because John the Baptist was going to be the new Isaiah. He was preparing the way for the Lord, calling people to repentance. But he also put, started his gospel with that to say to us that the God that John the Baptist is paving the way for is the same as the God of Isaiah. He is big and he is caring. And so Jesus came and he picked up little kids and he stretched out his arm and he healed blind men and, and he comforted those who were in sorrow. And yet, he raised his arm in power over Satan and rose from the dead. He displayed the power and the caring of God fully and finally. Jesus is big and Jesus cares. Let's pray together. Oh God, we stand in awe of your greatness and we stand in awe of your care. And I pray for some folks who really need to know what you're like today because their perception of you has not been like that. And they, like Israel, need to know who you really are. I pray, Lord, that there will be people who will come to you today and believe that you have the power to change their lives because you are great and believe that you love them and you care for them. And so they'll come to you, the Good Shepherd, and I pray that each of us would put our hope and our trust and our patient waiting in you. And some of us right now are saying we want to bring our empties to you and we ask you to exchange them for fullness. We ask you to renew our strength that we may soar like eagles and run and not grow weary and walk and not faint. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. Stand again.